welcome back to Reasonable Disagreements, a Hoover Institution podcast on law and policy. This is Adam White, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend Richard Epstein. Richard, how are you today? Well, I'm in war-torn Chicago, but doing very well, thank you. Well, we'll get to that in just a little bit. But first, let's start with the news of the day. I'm sure we will. (laughs) We're recording this on uh, August 24th, and just a few hours before we set the tape, uh, TikTok, the social media company, filed lost about the lawsuit in federal court in California against Donald Trump challenging his executive order uh, putting constraints on the TikTok business and those who would do business with it. Uh, TikTok brings a variety of challenges, uh, challenges ranging from the non-delegation doctrine to a violation of their constitutional rights and uh, overreaches of federal power against President Trump. It's going to be a fascinating lawsuit. Richard, have you gotten a chance to read it yet? And if so, what do you think of it? Well, I both read the lawsuit and the executive order, so I'm a man primed with virtue on this particular topic. (laughs) Um, You know, generally, I've always said about Donald Trump, it's all a la carte. I may agree with him strongly on some issues and disagree with him equally strongly on others. And this is a case in which this law school strikes me as one of the most improbable lawsuits that I've ever seen. The uh, documentation that is given for very serious charges of aiding and abetting the enemy so that Chinese equipment could somehow or other filter itself through uh, it seemed to me to be almost laughable and transparently forced. If you're going to make an allegation like that and you have a company which essentially has 90 million or more subscribers doing constant business in an absolute whirlwind way, featuring mainly teenage girls doing various kinds of dances and routine, you'd have thought that you could find at least some illustration of a potential security breach so that you could say that all the risks in question were uh, not hypothetical. But there is absolutely nothing whatsoever by way of concrete particularity, uh, which starts to frame this thing. Then you start looking at the ownership structure, and it turns out that uh, TikTok is a subsidiary of some exotically named Byte company, um, but it is not owned by the Chinese government either. Uh, rather, it's got all sorts of diverse holding. In addition, when you read the very strong response that Covington and Burling prepared in its particular complaint to try to set this thing aside, Um, The company has already put into place all sorts of security devices, walls and gates and moats and so forth, in order to make sure that there's not going to be any spillover. Um, And so this thing is now treated as though it's like Huawei or some of these other companies. And frankly, I don't see it. The the thing that makes it even more preposterous as a security situation is there's a general maxim. You're not allowed to bargain away from money your security interests in the United States. And what Trump has announced publicly, which I think is quite indefensible, is that he has said, well, if you pay the right amount of money to the United States government for facilitating this particular transaction, then you could go forward with it. If, in fact, there were a security risk, you would never, ever allow that to be cured by a payment of money to the company. So essentially, it looks as though it's some kind of an expropriation arrangement. So I cannot begin to understand why it is that he is putting this sort of thing forward. As you know, I mean, he blows hot and cold, and this is an area in which I think he is just making a terrible kind of strategic and political mistake. The Democrats will rightly gang up on him. The tech world will turn against him. And and it turns out to be a really bizarre maneuver because I don't even see what political constituencies he's serving in this particular case by threatening to upset this particular enterprise, which has been by every measure a spectacular standard. So I give the president a cold F on this particular case. Well, there's a lot in the, the end of your answer. You, you, you raise a lot of issues. 
one is the president uh, sort of calling for a payback to the federal government for forcing this transaction into the hands of Microsoft or another company. I think he actually referred to it as key money, a uh, reference back to, I guess, how business is, is done in the, in the New York real estate world. Obviously, that was, that was abhorrent. I'm not sure about the political fallout of this. President Trump is campaigning against Joe Biden as being too soft on China. It'll be interesting to see how things play out politically if the Democrats, if they'll feel uh, compelled to engage the issue, to show that they're not pushovers for China. Who knows? But to get back to the very beginning of all this, one of the things that complicates the lawsuit, and I'm really curious to see what kind of a response the Trump administration makes, is, is on the disclosure of factual issues. Again, this all began with the executive order that you referred to. Uh, President Trump, in signing, signing that executive order, made a variety of allegations, but as with most executive orders, it's not as though he backed it up with uh, affidavits, declarations, national security reports, all sorts of things. No, it was an executive order. We don't know what the Trump administration knows but hasn't said yet. And so when the lawsuit makes that claims, not just to say violations of constitutional rights, but says things like this is not a bona fide national security issue or national security emergency, that's a very interesting claim for them to make because we'll see what the Trump administration says in response. First of all, we'll see whether the Trump administration responds at all. They might claim that this entire, the, the entire subject matter of the lawsuit is really the matter of, of national security secrets and can't be litigated in court. You can get all sorts of claims of executive privilege or national security privilege and, and so on. Second, aside from all of that, the lawsuit charges that President Trump has exceed, exceeded his statutory powers, his constitutional powers. But the fact remains that the statutes on these issues are, are very, very broad. We have a, this, the CFIUS framework to review transactions when they occur, um, foreign investment in the United States, that is. And there's other statutory frameworks governing relations with with companies owned by foreign countries. But one common thread that runs through all of them is the president and the executive branch, as with so much of the administrative state, but especially on matters of national security, they get a lot of latitude, both in the law as it's written and then in the law as it's applied by courts. Now, of course, this lawsuit was filed in the Western District of California, and so I suspect that the odds, just running the odds of who the judges are in, in a given court, President Trump's odds in district court might be kind of low. His odds in the Ninth Circuit aren't particularly great, but they're better than they would have been eight years ago if you look at just partisan affiliation, but also on questions of executive power and deference to executive judgment. I don't know how this is going to go, but I think that it's going to be very interesting to see how the lawsuit actually unfolds step by step on these factual questions that the litigants are asserting. But Richard, let me ask you a, a question. As a libertarian, um, yes. obviously you're a fan of, of, of free men and, and free markets, but when markets get wrapped up in national security issues like this, how does, how does a libertarian think through the proper role of government in limiting people's interactions with uh, foreign-owned uh, corporations, especially when there's allegations of national security issues? This is a great question, and it's a very difficult issue. Um, the issue comes up in many cases. The other area in which it often comes up with, which gives you an instructive precedent, 
is somebody wants to introduce into the United States substances which you would regard as being deleterious um, to wildlife or dangerous to health and so forth. If you remember, there was a scare many years ago about alar grapes coming in from Chile, uh, which justified a ban. And it turned out that all the information on which this rests were completely false. Uh, there was a defamation suit that was summarily thrown out. And so the ploy actually worked. I think a libertarian has the following view, um, which is that health issues and safety issues, whether it be with grapes or with securities, are always legitimate concerns for government intervention. Uh, but the level of deference that you would give would be less than would be given by people who are modern devotees of the administrative state. The kind of position that I would take is that you may not have to reveal all of the particular secrets that you have, but at the very least, you have to be prepared to go into camera uh, to show to the judge exactly what it is that's going to be involved in this case and to make a credible verbal narrative. So, uh, for example, if you were trying to talk about this compared to the Huai case, you know, the H-U-W-E-I, whatever it's spelling in the Chinese situation, these guys are inventing software that's going to be incorporated um, into equipment which could easily contain bugs that allow you to either destroy the stuff that it's incorporated into or track the information that's sent through the network. I can see very credible cases for saying that under those circumstances, you afford deference. Uh, but one of the things that I think was done by the um, challenges, uh, the Tic Tac in this particular case, and they're very well-crafted complaint, is they say they've already got all of these safety guards in, in place, and they're willing to put in more, quite obviously, if it turns out that the government could suggest something that has to be done. Uh, so at that point, you have to look at the inherent nature of a company which is not under Chinese control, either directly or indirectly, has a kind of a, uh, a wall, you might even call it metaphorically a Chinese wall, uh, put around its internal operations, uh, exchanging various kinds of information between kids that run from 15 to 30 seconds into a minute and so forth. It just doesn't seem credible as an abstract matter that this is true. So at that point, you start demanding some degree of particularity. And there's absolutely none whatsoever. You can say that somebody who, for example, wants to import aluminum into the United States in order to allow cars to be made is a security risk. And one of the reasons why I'm, I'm pretty hostile to Trump on this particular issue is he is already known to have abused the security exceptions to free trade um, in the context of various kinds of other situations involving, for example, as I mentioned, rolled aluminum and things of that particular sort. And so uh, to some extent, his track record, I think, embarrasses him under these cases. And so as a libertarian, I would say that this is not a case of categorical legality. That would be absurd. But I would say it's a case where you demand some kind of a showing. I'll give you a kind of another illustration on this. There's a famous case from about 1986 called Main v. Taylor. And the issue is whether or not, given the uh, preference for free trade in the United States, uh, you could ban certain kinds of shellfish from going into the state of Maine. And the Supreme Court said, well, you can, but it's not going to be easy. What you have to do is to show how it's going to be a, a demonstrable damage to the flora and fauna. Perhaps it's introducing a predatory fish that will destroy everything else. And if you could do that, as they said, you could do it in that particular case, then you allow it to go forward. Uh, so I think these dual motive cases, uh, whether you're dealing with free trade, international trade, and national security, uh, um, really have to take that general kind of shifting presumption approaches. In general, I'm more sympathetic to national security claims than I am to economic claims having to do with health in general. But in this particular case, uh, there's so little by way of background information, public disclosure, scandal, or anything. Uh, so I think, in effect, um, there are not going to be many surprises that come out 
And as I said to you before, if you really believe it's a national security issue, you cannot say, pay me enough money and I'll go away. And the fact that he's putting that demand on the end of this particular claim suggests that the national security issues, at least as presently framed, are highly tenuous and probably wholly invalid. One of the reasons why I'm so tentative on this so far, not just because the case was only filed hours ago, but just in general, is I'm just torn on the issue. On the one hand, I'm, I'm wary of Congress delegating open-ended powers to the president on any subject. Um, but I, as a, somebody who understands the need for executive power in our constitutional system, you know, I do recognize that, that there's a place for, for real presidential power on, on matters of national security. Um, this is not new, right? One of the earliest non-delegation cases, we call it today the cargo of the Brig Aurora. It was a case the, the Chief Justice Marshall and the Supreme Court were considering uh, the statute that gave the president the power to leverage tariffs um, in the context of national security and, and the questions about uh, whether Britain and France were violating our, our neutral commerce. Sometimes there's just decisions that there's, there's discretionary judgments that the presidents have to make in the interest of national security. And so I'm, I'm, I think I'm, I'm, not only am I okay with Congress giving it those powers, I think it, giving the president those powers, I think they're practically a constitutional necessity. At the same time, though, when you give a president that kind of discretionary power, it really does become incumbent upon the president to use it judiciously to give some kind of justification for what he's doing so that not just the people, but the other parts of government, Congress and, and the courts, can trust that the president is exercising those powers uh, judiciously and responsibly. Needless to say, President Trump's rhetoric surrounding these issues, especially the key money thing, really destroys any kind of trust that people are going to have that all of this is on the up and up without more explanation. We saw things similar with the, the national security tariffs and, and I think with the, you know, the so-called emergency surrounding border wall funding. And again, President Trump isn't the first president to make you know, sort of dubious assertions of emergency or national security powers, and he won't be the last either. But it certainly complicates things. I don't know. <laughs> do you have any further thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, yes, I do. I mean, I think the problem, Adam, is that you you can't take a per se rule in either direction. And once you understand all of that, then the only thing that's left to do is to have a system of shifting presumptions. And so what you try to do is to gather the evidence from public sources of one kind or another and your basic understanding of how these things work in order to make your initial judgment. Obviously, it's clear that the president has a right to make a case when he gets into California district court as to what is going on. Uh, but on the strength of the evidence so far, um, he's behind. Think of this as a poker game in which you got some whole cards and you got some show cards. President is showing a disconnected bunch of low cards on the table. And, you know, maybe he could fill it in together with his whole cards, but it doesn't look that way. On the other hand, it looks as though the other side seems to have connected pairs or, or all of the same suit seems to be fairly strong. As a betting man, you favor the one side rather than the other. The other thing, of course, that you always give the president is even if he loses now, in this particular case, on the state of the record, if things should be transformed uh, as you go down the road, then what you clearly do under the circumstances, you allow him to resubmit the application uh, with the supplementary information so that you could get it going. Uh, so I think one of the ways that you try to temper this is you say, okay, we don't grant it to you now, but there's no such thing in a case like this as race judicata uh, where you're going to be bound. If you present any kind of new evidence and so forth, we're going to keep this as a continuum hearing, even though in ordinary private lawsuits, we might be reluctant to do so. And I think if you do all of that, you're 
likely to do better than you are by just simply having very strong a priori notions that delegation and this national security in modern times is a matter of necessity. I fully agree with that. I mean, one of the great themes of American constitutional law on delegation is if you go back to 1791, it turned out that an effort to delegate the location of post offices uh, throughout the United States to the president was struck down on the grounds that it was an improper delegation. Could you imagine Congress today trying to figure out where you locate 9,000 post offices across the United States? Uh, as government gets bigger, delegation starts to get larger. And nobody should try to gainsay that. And that's certainly true in national security. But that doesn't mean at the retail level, you can't find something that you can challenge, even though at the wholesale level, you believe that this stuff has to go through the kinds of processes that you've had. I've been to a couple of these national security missions, and this discussion bears no relationship to what you see in connection with when you start selling something like to the UAE, which is being on the table now, how advanced systems do you, how advanced are the systems that you put into this plane that you sell to them, given the fact that they could fall into hostile hands and attack either Israel or the United States? Those are really tough national security questions. Tic-tac, um, I just don't think it rises to that level. And so I'll stop there. Well, we'll wait to see how the national security aspects of this unfold. But I guess just one last thought on this, thinking through the nature of executive power in this context, you know, a good Federalist reading, Federalist Society member like me always goes back to Federalist 70, right? And, and the idea that we have an energetic executive whose energy would, would be under uh, girded by the fact that he would work swiftly and often secretly especially on matters of national security. I'm just wary about funneling these sorts of disputes into the courts of law and demanding a lot of disclosure from the federal government on this. Again, a lot of it comes down to who do you trust more, and not that many people trust President Trump right now. But in terms of setting any particular president aside, how you run it as a system, I'm just so wary of funneling these sorts of international security issues or even just purported international security issues through the courts. When you started talking, Richard, and talking about shifting burdens of proof, I didn't know whether to take you literally or just seriously. I didn't know whether you meant shifting burdens of, of persuasion in the court of public opinion or actually in the courts of law. And I, I, I take it you, you actually meant in the courts of law. I think there's just a, a very... There's a, Oh, okay. I was just saying, I just think there's a very good question about whether lawsuits regarding the president, the, the president's assertions of national security power, whether they really belong in courts at all. But that's just an overarching judgment that society has to make as to whether to funnel these things into the courts or not. Siphius and, and sort of the analogous issues like this one, they're always... There's, there's always the, the, the dangerous mix of both national security considerations and just you know, just uh, underhanded tactics by, by, by competitors. I remember when Dubai Ports World, that acquisition got wrapped up in, in CFIUS. It came out either during the process or afterwards that the whole thing really started because of a disgruntled bidder who had gotten outbid for uh, the port project. And I saw this morning in the Wall Street Journal allegations that the TikTok issue was really pushed by, by Facebook uh, CEO Mark Zuckerberg in his conversations with the administration. Who knows if that's true or all, at all? I mean, that's why I'm, I'm left so conflicted. On the one hand, um, I'm wary of delegations. On the other hand, I recognize the need for presidential power on issues of national security. And on the third hand, I'm always worried about just good faith constitutional and statutory structures being misused uh, by, 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 by competitors or, or other uh, private participants in this entire process. 
So let's talk about it. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, the fact that you could show the Zuckerberg influence is a good reason for having a little bit more intervention, but I think we've exhausted the topic. On to the next thing, Adam. Let's talk about law and order, Richard. I'm in favor. Are, are you? You know, I, I keep thinking back to Richard Nixon in 1968 running on that platform with a great deal of effectiveness. Yes, I'm in favor of law and order. I'm living in the middle of a zone which has not been orderly and has not been lawful for a long time. Uh, our house at 800 North Michigan Avenue, the several stores downstairs are boarded up. If you go up or down Michigan Avenue, say within a radius of a half a mile of our house, uh, there are after the recent alter, you know, upsets and, and so forth in early August, there are probably 50 to 100 stores that are boarded up. And now the boards have a kind of an ominous permanent quality associated with them. They seem to be of hardier construction and they're all painted black. And sometimes you see a little window in the store saying open for business business. Uh, sometimes you see these things done. Um, yes, I'm in favor of law and order. And I think that we have basically run the table with the spec that somehow or other various grievances against the police force justify what's going on. Lori Lightfoot, who is uh, certainly not a fellow intellectual traveler with me, um, basically has announced that she's just fed up with it. Uh, she said she thought the attitudes after uh, uh, George Floyd were righteous. I think she's wrong about that. Uh, that's a different discussion as to how the police did did not behave in that case. Uh, but she said, this is just naked vandalism. And then just to top it off, she called the police out to defend herself in her own home because she says her family were being put at risk by demonstrators who were gathering in threatening fashion. Uh, there is a, a long-standing debate, which goes back to the labor cases on picketing and so forth in the 1890s, as to whether or not pickets are simply a good faith demonstration of a particular position and therefore protected as freedom of speech, or whether they're an implied threat to wreck the place. Um, they're going to be hard cases, but none of these recent cases are that. You start seeing fires, you start seeing bombs, you start seeing rocks and brickbats being thrown, and you really want to do something. The problem is, in many of these states, there's just no willingness whatsoever uh, to punish those people who are engaged in these kinds of activities. Some of it is surely based upon race, some of it is surely based upon the distaste with Donald Trump, some of it is surely based on an antagonism towards the rich and famous in a given area. Uh, but if you looked at the recent story coming out of Oregon, the district attorney there has decided not to prosecute some 200 cases, leaving the police completely miffed about the overall situation. Because what are they supposed to say if you don't get a prosecution when it turns out you think you have a lawful arrest? Uh, my view about this is that this issue is important enough uh, that in order to make the Democratic platform even remotely credible to me, who basically disagrees with everything from top to bottom on their program, there has to be a very strong statement by both Kamala Harris and by uh, Joe Biden about what they think on this. When she was the attorney general in California some years ago, she was said to be tough on crime. Uh, but now with Black Lives Matter and everything else, she started to waffle on these kinds of issues. I don't think we can do it. Uh, the position that Nixon took, he says, persuasion, fine. You want to disagree with me on the merits, fine. But there's a line between force and persuasion. There's a line between talking on the one hand and ominous threats on the other. Other. Uh, sometimes it's hard to figure out where that line is drawn. But in these cases, it's painfully obvious what is going on to happen. And essentially, per Portland is a city in permanent siege. People are basically afraid to speak their mind, to walk about the place. It's an intolerable situation. Um, 
And I think, in effect, that unless something is going to be done about this, you'll see further instances of this elsewhere. Right now in Chicago, I hope the mayor has gained a further resolve. Uh, but we already have two strikes against us. And Lord knows what's going to happen to the city if you get another outburst like the one that we previously have, which was simply mayhem and mobsters coming out at all hours of the night in order to wreak destruction. There wasn't even a pretense of a political protest in that case about Floyd George or anything else, or George Floyd. Floyd, rather, or anything else. So, I mean, on this issue, I think the <coughs> there is a real need for a toughening of the will, and I think it has to be bipartisan. You know, the reason why we bring up this issue in this episode, in case it's not obvious, is as we record this on August 24th, we just completed the week of the Democratic uh, Party's convention, and now tonight we begin the, the Republican Party convention. And it's been telegraphed pretty clearly that President Trump's week's uh, message is going to be one of law and order, of chaos in the states and the cities, especially in blue states and blue cities, the threats of violence and the, the, the danger to personal safety, to the economy, to private property, to, to all of it. Democrats in, in their week's uh, convention didn't talk really about the protests. In fact, they went about as far out of their way as possible to not touch on them all, at all as as Noah Rothman observed in Commentary Magazine. But in a way, the Democrats' own convention and their own message this year is also one of law and order. It's law and order in the executive branch and in the federal government, complaining of President Trump's, uh, the way he's conducted himself in office, the way he's managed uh, managed the federal government. I mean, they've certainly accused him of, of law-breaking. They've accused his subordinates of law-breaking. They've accused him and his subordinates of just a disordered administration and a, a, a corrupted administration. And so they're making their own sort of law and order argument. And so you have both parties making law and order appeals, Republicans focused on what they, they call failings in the states and Democrats focused on what they call failings in the federal government. And there's a real appeal, I think, to both, both those arguments. There are a lot of Americans who are fed up with what they're seeing happening in Portland and other cities and also just totally exhausted by the, the chaos of the, of the Trump administration, the chaos or, or worse of the Trump administration. And I, I'm, among, I'm among them, I'd say. But what, what, what I wonder is where that leaves voters like me who are were for law and order in all of this and really fed up with it. There really isn't a natural place to go. Both parties are making their law and order appeals, but just on the terms that suit them and not law and order for its own sake. Well, look, I mean, I disagree, at least to this extent. There's no reason why if the Democrats are prepared to say they don't think all is well in the Trump administration, they should remain silent on what is an obvious and clear form of violence committed by some of their core constituencies. So their silence is inexcusable. When it comes to executive orders and, and political manipulations, my view is there's certainly been some irregularities in the Trump administration. I mentioned one just now on what I thought was a terrible way to handle the Tic Tac situation. But on the other hand, I mean, if you start to go back to some of the investigations, the Mueller investigation, all the irregularities through the Steele memo and the FDA, all the stuff that, that, that took place with respect to the way in which Congress was, Adam Schiff reported things to um, on, on the level of innovation. I mean, I think there's a lot of irregularity on the Democratic side. I think the behavior with respect to Flynn was pretty despicable. I think the behavior with respect to Kavanaugh was also pretty despicable under these cases. I don't think the Democrats 
Democrats have a clean hand on that particular issue. Uh, and indeed, I think a great deal of the problem comes from the fact that they are constantly harping on this. It is a very dangerous thing to constantly treat the president as always a complete and utter and total racist. I don't believe that's true. And I think it's really a mistake to sort of ignore some of the good things that he's done. I wrote a recent column, which is probably out today or tomorrow on my Hoover defining ideas. And I said, look, in the midst of all this bedlam, one clear diplomatic triumph has been ignored. Trump and, and Kushner managed to put together a deal between the Israelis and the United Arab Emirates, which takes a couple of very dangerous issues and removes them from the table. I mean, the Israeli uh, betonoir was the prospect that they would try unilateral annexation of any part of the territory in the West Bank. And they, quote, gave that up in exchange for the normalization of relationships with the United Arab Emirates and so forth. I think it's a great win on both sides. I'm still in favor of trying to negotiate something with the Palestinians. Uh, but what you cannot do is let the Palestinian issue essentially bring all kind of constructive order in the Middle East to the halt and so forth. And, and Trump did that. I mean, people have called him a warmonger. They've called him all sorts of crazy things. But this was, I think, a diplomatic triumph. And I think the way in which he tried to deal with the violence with respect to the federal buildings in Oregon was also handled in a pretty good fashion. Um, I'm very much in favor of the proposals that he put forward to reform NEPA and various other kinds of things. Um, indeed, on many of the issues having to do with the Paris Accords and climate change and so forth, I think he's on the right side of these issues. And if you want to worry about things that are crazy, you look at the fires in California and you ask yourself, what's the cause of them? The simplest explanation, which they hate to admit, is that the intermittent nature of solar and wind power is such that when the sun goes down and the power demands go up, you have to jolt up the system to incredible levels in order to make the transition, have to pay enormous sums to out-of-state providers. And in so doing, you upset the grid and you create it much more likely uh, that you're going to get some kind of an electric response, which is going to develop into a fire. Then it also turns out they don't manage their lands correctly and so forth. So California burning um, seems to me to be a kind of an issue that one has to worry about. And you can't blame the Trump administration on that, nor do I think you can blame them for the chaos that took place in New York State with respect to the treatment of COVID. I think the uh, governor there and the mayor there are complete amateurs on these things. I think Fauci is a disgrace and a total ignoramus on these kinds of issues. Uh, he's there, but he's certainly not Trump's man. Uh, so I think that if you worry about violence and you worry about the hardcore violence, it's all all on the Democrats. If you worry about the regulatory state, I think there are many Trump abuses, and I've started to talk about one today. But on balance, I don't think it's even close. I think a democratic regime would be the most ruinous thing that we could possibly matter on every kind of ground, having to deal not only with substance, but also with issues of decorum. I actually fear that they would be prepared to criminally prosecute um, Donald Trump because they simply do not accept the legitimacy of his victory in the 2016 election. And that's something I certainly do not want to look forward to. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm against lock her up, lock him up politics myself, and I always have been. And I, I think the best thing that if, if Biden does happen to win this fall, the best thing that he could do would be to immediately disclaim any kind of prosecution of his vanquished political opponent. I think that we just need to stay far, far away from that kind of banana republic stuff. I think that Republicans need to worry much more about law-breaking among Republicans. Democrats need to worry much more about law-breaking among Democrats and not turn these things into, cross, into vendettas that cross partisan lines. I think it's one of those areas where we really need sort of self-restraint for the sake of national unity. 
There's a lot of what you said that I wouldn't disagree with. Obviously, uh, started with the California's environmental and energy and land management policies. There's no shortage of things that blue state governors and blue state mayors have done laughably or horrifically wrong. And, and when these those things happen, they need to be criticized as such. I don't care how many sort of good things that either the blue state mayors or governors do right or, or that happen on their watch, just as if something goes right in the Trump administration or just goes well on the Trump administration's watch. And I, I don't know if I'd give President Trump you know, full credit for the Israel-UAE deal. I'd give primary credit to Israel and UAE, and, and I'm, I'm not sure how much of it is President Trump's. But the point is for both Governor Cuomo, Governor Newsom, the mayor in Portland, President Trump or whatever, Whatever good things they're doing along the way, they're, I think, totally overshadowed by some of the really unsteady administration that they've undertaken. In President Trump's case, his, his administration's handling of the COVID-19 outbreak, and even now, watching President Trump trying to hurry various treatments or purported treatments through a federal approval process that's going to leave the public just totally un, unconvinced by the administration's actions and wary of any kind of treatment that the administration certifies, I think that's going to overshadow so many of the good things that the Trump administration has done, from regulation to judges and, and so on. And well, by the way, I I'm certainly not, disagree I'm not gonna the only, last... I, I, I do want to say just one last thing is, is I just fully disagree with you on Fauci. I, I, I just I, I think he's, he has actually carried himself in his duties in, a, in, a, in an ideal way. I wish he didn't talk to the press as much as he did. I, w- I wish he would stay behind the scenes more. But I think that uh, our administration would, I think administration in general would benefit from having more Fauci's, not less, just making sure that they stay in their proper lanes. No, I could not disagree more. The HCQ situation that he has done has been nothing short of a national scandal. Um, the man has this fixation with respect to double-blind clinical trials. Uh, Trump was actually correct to suggest the drug in combination with azithromycin and zinc uh, where it works well. You can't pick that up in a clinical trial. I don't know how many hundreds of people died unnecessarily. His effort to support remdesivir, which is a hospital treatment that you have to take intravenously, was the most misguided thing possible. I cannot think of somebody less able to deal with these issues than he is. The FDA is something I've worked on and studied a long time. And the tide is going against him. Everywhere else in the world, people are now using the uh, hydroxychloroquine. Uh, the bans have just been lifted, thank God, in Minnesota and Ohio. Uh, they should be lifted in Minnesota, Michigan and so forth. He does not know what he is talking about. I mean, I cannot stress enough that he is simply archaic in the way in which he thinks and way in which he presents himself. The the FDA in general has been a long-term menace for dealing with all sorts of health and treatment. And in this particular case, I think it's really dangerous. To advocate all the complicated treatments he wants is just crazy. Not to provide this sort of combination package to healthcare workers who are first in the line of duty on a prophylactic basis is bad. Uh, this guy really does not belong there. Uh, Adam, there are many things I'm willing to disagree with on and say yes and no. But Fauci, I think, is the most overrated figure. Figure, uh, that we have seen in public life. If you read some of the letters written by various docs who actually know what's going on on the medical side of all of this stuff, um, it seems to me that the case is overwhelming against him on this. There's no nation other than the United States which has taken this line. There's no nation other than the United States which has had the death toll given up at this particular level. Now, Trump 
uh, his suggestion when he said this in March about the drug was made in an appropriate fashion, Fauci runs to the microphone and says, well, yes, it may have worked then, but they didn't do a clinical trial on this stuff. That just shows that he has the completely wrong mental frame with respect to this issue. There are very few things about which I get exercised. That man is one of them. Oh, no, I, I just completely disagree. I think that he in does his not role, know any medicine, uh, or, period. I'd say in his role, uh, counseling in favor of restraint before we authorize new treatments, let alone trumpet them from the podium at the White House, is the right move. I think that if we had followed... It's the wrong move. I, I think that if we had followed more of his advice from the start, especially in how we how Americans conducted themselves publicly in their relations with one another, I think the problems would have been much much more uh, restrained. I'm not a listen. I'm not, I'm not a fan of the administrative state. I'm not a fan of governance by bureaucrats and technocrats, but I'm glad that they that our government has them at in their service. And I'd say the problems that I've, I've seen around Fauci have been problems not of Fauci's own making so much of the press's makings, putting him sort of in juxtaposition with the president, trying to treat him as the de facto leader on these issues, when of course Fauci is there to give advice and guidance and expertise that's going to be weighed by the president and by the people against countervailing considerations regarding economic growth and so on. But I, in his proper role, I'm, I'm grateful for Fauci, and I wish we had followed more of what he had to say. No, he's wrong on every single issue. Um, the entire system of medicine depends on off-label uses, which are gotten through by trial and error and a smattering of theory. That's exactly what should have been allowed to happen in this particular case, and the equilibrium would have come outside of him. When he basically announces, for example, that he embraces the study that was published in The Lancet, which turned out to be a packet of lies and frauds, um, he showed the lack of judgment about this. He has not made any single right decision on any single issue. And in fact, if you're trying to figure out what has gone on in this country, uh, there are two colossal set of blunders, neither of which is attributable to Trump. One of them was the decision in New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, and so forth, uh, to force COVID-positive patients back into nursing homes. Inexcusable. Uh, to this day, Cuomo will not admit the number of people who've been killed by that, but the number of deaths in New York State are 32,000, about tenfold of what it happens in Florida, which gets all the blame. And then there's the refusal to use the optimal treatment. And then there's this fetish with respect to masses, which mass, which I think is just wildly overstated in terms of their ability to prevent these kinds of control. Uh, there have been massive mistakes in dealing with the COVID situation, the lockdowns, the quarantines, and so forth. Trump has done nothing on this particular store. Um, it all rests with other kinds of actors. The FDA has always been a menace when it comes to the way in which it keeps drugs off to the market after they pass phase one clinical trials. This is no exception to it. I mean, every time I go and read another medical report on this stuff, I want to climb up the wall. I get so frustrated at the way in which he has managed to do this. He is superannuated. He should be removed from office immediately. There are very few things on which I feel more strongly than him. I think that this is just a national scandal. Well, I certainly agree with you on the, uh, on the nursing home situation in New York and elsewhere. On the other things, I just I guess that's why we call the podcast uh, not reason, unreasonable agreements, but reasonable disagreements. We will return to it again sometime. Uh, Fauci, is it's like touching a, a tripwire. I mean, I can't think of anything that he's done 
that I regard as correct. I look, I have made my own mistakes on the projections and so forth. And, you know, I admit them. He never admits anything. He never comes back and says, well, maybe we should reconsider the HCQ as it's being used worldwide. It's being used in Nigeria. It's being used in India. It's being used in Brazil. It's now being used in many states. And he still sits there and he wants to favor the alternative kinds of treatments. My own physician says he has it and he supplied me with the three drugs god forbid if anything should happen to myself and my wife um i cannot i mean i just it's just beyond comprehension and i mean uh, this is a case in which cuomo is a culprit of the worst order his quarantine is misguided the sheer economic dislocation is created in that state by trying to keep people out uh the chances that anybody who comes in from a city like chicago where the rate is itself low has to be quarantined for two weeks uh how many deaths are you going to prevent probably none under these circumstances all of the decisions they made are made in secret you never figure out what their calculations are why they did something else the city is reduced to ruins on economic stuff rent disputes between landlord and tenants are there people are having serious psychological disorders a major proportion and the health department in new york state is absolutely blind to all the havoc that they have wreaked this is a true national tragedy um and trump as best i can tell has done absolutely nothing whatsoever that compares to the kinds of stuff here i mean he can be a whipping boy on the stuff having to do with the uh, tic-tac. I think he's behaved foolishly on that situation, and I've said so. But on the, on the health issues and on the COVID issues, progressive Democrats bear 99% of the point. I'd say, I'd say kind of like the earlier discussion on law and order, I think that there's plenty to see both at the federal level and at the state and local level. Obviously, we've already highlighted what's happened at the state and local level that deserves further um, Further spotlighting and, and criticism. It is funny to think that you know a few months ago you had uh, blue state governors complaining that the president was overstepping his bounds and asserting, you know, their own powers in our federalist system. Um, but then they need to actually take responsibility for what they've done or failed to do. And and I'd say Governor Cuomo's approach with the nursing homes and now his his continued approach on uh, shutdowns in the city long after the crisis seems to have passed in, in New York City and New York State. It deserves a lot of attention. On the, at the federal side with President Trump, I've focused more on the, or, the origins of the outbreak, the fact that the federal government really was asleep at the switch, it seemed. It reacted far too late, and President Trump loves to, com, loves to trumpet his supposed ban on travel from China, which he always overstates. But the fact is, even when he got that one thing right, uh, there were so many other things that he failed to do. We had a shutdown for months in this country in the spring. And when we started to emerge from that shutdown, we were really no closer on getting out uh, tests and contact tracing like so many people, including my AEI colleague, Scott Gottlieb, had been calling for. It's like we just squandered uh, those months and were left in basically the same position that they were before. And at worst, President Trump made things even worse by telling the states they needed to compete with one another for supplies and so on, instead of really taking the lead in federal coordination of support um, and, 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 and building up our strategic stockpiles of resources on these things. I, 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 just, I think that it, there's, there's, there's I don't no think shortage that's of tragedy to go around on this, and a lot of it belongs to governors and mayors. But I do think that there's a lot to be said about President Trump's mismanagement of this entire sad saga. Well, I think you're being much too harsh on him. In fact, there's a very nice piece by Rich Lowry in the National Review explaining how it was that the danger of hoarding with the mask and the ventilating devices was 
counteracted by the administration uh, when it came to giving additional ships and support to New York State, which they did not need. Trump had always obliged under these circumstances. I, I think, in effect, it's very easy to hit him on that. Fauci, of course, got everything wrong early on as well about the severity of the situation. Uh, so there was a lot of grains. Yours truly got some of this stuff wrong. Uh, later, I figured out why one of the reasons why it's so difficult to make projections about this is that not only are there the inherent instabilities associated with the disease, uh, but the interventions themselves completely change the probabilities of things going on. And so everybody's assessments went from April 1st when we're low, my virtue of the fact they didn't take into account what went on in this case. I think Trump is a whipping boy for lots of things. Uh, I do not think that anything he said about HQ HCQ is the slightest bit out of place and so forth. And I think Fauci was just dead wrong. The governors control all this stuff. It is ironic uh, that they are able to put quarantines that interfere with the movement and interstate commerce and get away with it. There's no judicial intervention in this particular case. Um, the power, 99% of the power lies in the FDA and in the states and very little bit lies with Trump's. I agree he is not always appropriate in the way in which he speaks and his boosterism is inappropriate. Uh, but as ever with Trump, his bark is worse than his bite. And Cuomo is a terrific presenter. You watch this guy and you listen to him talk and you realize that he's got the art of presentation down cold. If you listen to what he says, it's clear he knows absolutely nothing about well, when we reconvene uh, in September, uh, the conventions will be behind us. We'll be in the, the full uh, last two months of, of the presidential campaign. We'll have a lot to discuss, I'm sure, with respect to the campaign, with respect to the prospects for a Biden Justice Department, uh, judicial appointments and, and possible restructuring of the Supreme Court. We shall see. But I hope, uh, I hope our listeners have enjoyed this conversation. And on behalf of Richard, I hope that they join us for the next episode of Reasonable Disagreements. And thank you, Adam. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.